Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this, we really made it. It's episode 100, The Fae. I can't believe that we've done 100 episodes of this thing. It's kind of insane. Why don't we tell the people how Spirits started, Julia? I was in a terrible dead-end job. You were working in finance. A terrible, high-stress job. And we were meeting like once or twice a week to get drinks and just like talk about our shitty days. Uh, And then we decided, hey, you know what we talk about a lot? Death. Also mythology. Yep. Um, Why don't we make a podcast about this? And then we came up with the name and then the rest was history. We literally drew the logo on a bar napkin. I wish we had that napkin, but I do not. I have a picture of it somewhere on one of my old phones. Actually, probably in the emails to our beautiful, wonderful designer, Allison Wakeman. For sure. And then Eric Schneider was like, hey, podcasts, I love them. I'll edit it. And I like virtually put my hands on his virtual shoulders because he lives in Ohio and said, Eric, are you serious? Are you going to do this? And he was like, yes. And the Spirits team was born. Oh, it's amazing. It's so, it's so, I'm going to cry. It's fine. And so 100 episodes and nearly three years later, Julia and I get to do this as a living. Eric is working full time in uh, digital media, which he was uh, trying to do before. And I I can't overstate the, the ways in which this podcast has changed my life. It helps encourage me to come out. It helps encourage me to pursue a career I actually liked instead of one that I, that I thought I should be doing. And just meeting the most incredible people, our friends, our listeners, our listeners who have become our friends. I just, I'm lost for words. And I get to spend every week with you. You know what, Julia? You preempted me. I was going to do as my recommendation this week, creating a project, just starting it, ideally with your friends. Because just making it, just putting it out there, taking an idea and, and putting it online somewhere or in the world somewhere is such a powerful act. And it, it changes the world a little bit every time someone makes something that they really believe in. And I want more people to do it. And chances are, the thing that you make, it's going to make the world better. You're going to make someone's life better by doing a thing. And I know it's scary. It's vulnerable. It might make you really excited. It may make you really sad. It it might do all those things. But I think it's worth it. Do you know what else I think is worth it, Amanda? Supporting us on Patreon so we can continue to do this as our living? Uh, You read my mind. (laughs) And thank you to those who have joined our Patreon family just in time for episode 100. Jordan, Sammy, Darian, Spenya, and Vilma. They join the community of our amazing patrons, including our supporting producer-level patrons. Philip, Julie, Christina, Eeyore, Josie, Amara, Neil, Jessica, Ryan, Phil Fresh, and Deborah. And our legend-level patrons. Jess, Elisa, Zoe, Sandra, Audra, Mercedes, Jack Marie, and Leanne. You, we, there just wouldn't be a hundred episodes of Spirits without you. Period. That is literally true. Or it would have taken us four or five years to do because originally we posted episodes every two weeks, but now this is a weekly show. We have a hundred episodes literally and only because of the people who support us on Patreon. Do you know what else our patrons help us do? No, I can't guess this one. They help me buy ingredients to make drinks for our episodes. That is true. What did you make us for episode 100, Jules? I made us one of Yates' favorite drinks. I looked it up. Like, it's it's a thing. Uh, and it's called a Clover Club. Uh, and you'll see why this is relevant later on in the episode. But it does involve gin. Uh, Yates is a, is a bit of a character, but he did have good taste in liquor. Do you know who else has good taste? 
Is that our two sponsors for this episode, Calm and Skillshare? You got it. You did it. I mean, learning and uh, being mindful are two of my favorite activities. And I'm so glad that we have Skillshare, where Skillshare.com slash spirits will get you two months of premium subscription to their service for just 99 cents. And Calm, where Calm.com slash spirits gets you 25% off a Calm premium subscription. And we'll talk a little bit more about those in the refill. But Amanda, I just I want to say thank you to you, to Eric, to all of our listeners, all of our patrons. We had 100 episodes. And we're not stopping here. We have 100 more in us. We have at least 30 more on our schedule um, already. No, we're not stopping. That's true. We are going to Ohio. We are going to LA for a creator conference. We are going other places in the world next year. Don't get excited, Australia. I'm really sorry, but not Australia yet. But yeah. we have a few. We have a few things in store. We have brand new merch. We have flasks. So basically, we can do anything. We can. If we have a flask at our side, we can do anything. Well, I think I'm going to need one for our journey into Fadem. So why don't we get to it? Thank you. Welcome. We love you. And enjoy Spirits Podcast Episode 100, The Fae. I'm glad that we're drinking gin and tonics for this uh, episode. Isn't it? I don't know if it was Yates or somebody else, but wasn't gin linked to the like, like a, um, imagine, like imagination? Nope. Nope. The, the like psycho anal- hallucination. That's, That's the, the one. one. You got it. Oh, oh. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I haven't, for hearing. the record, had a sip yet. But no, I think this is true that like absinthe or something that gin absinthe. is linked to like, I think gin has a similar like the juniper, like there's either like scientific proof that it has like minor psychoactive properties or Yates was like, yo, this gin's gonna fuck you up, man. I mean, probably the second part. Probably the second part. Uh, Yates thinks a lot of things will fuck you up as we're gonna get to in this episode because... We are talking about the Fae. The Fae! I know, you're excited. No, the Fae. They can hear you. are excited. All of, all of our listeners are excited, I imagine. I have two paragraphs of disclaimer I now need to read, though. Okay. Okay. So y'all asked for it. Here it is. This, you get your episode on the Fae. I want to establish something off the bat. The reason I haven't done an episode on the Fae up until this point is that there is just so much information. It's so like doing an episode on saints. <laughs> you know, like there's so many. I am most definitely not going to touch on everything because there is no single origin of the Fae. Each European folklore features the Fae and has a different story and variations of different types of Fae. So like, let me just stress it again. There are so many stories and so many variations of the Fae. If I do not touch on one that you love, I apologize. I know this topic is something that people can get like super pedantic about, or it's just something that people are really passionate about. I get it. I understand. I apologize. But there are like literally billions of different types of Fae and origin stories of them and stuff like that. And usually when we do an episode of Spirits, we touch on a specific type of spirit. We touch on a specific story. We touch upon them loosely as part of a roundup like we don't do water spirits we do like many episodes on many different water spirits from many different times and many different places right or we touch upon a little bit of water spirits in a roundup episode yeah like just for the record not gonna touch on everything here i promise listen whenever people tweet us about how we like missed their favorite part of lord of the rings lore or arthurian lore or whatever i am like yes people you can make one of your own Multitude.productions slash resources. We have lots of ways that you can make your own podcast. You can write a blog post. You can you can make a little Instagram story. Talk about your nerdiness. I'm sorry we can't get to it all. We're doing our best. And um, that's all we can do. 
we are we are doing our best um just don't like steal our podcast idea because people have done that and asked us how to make this specific podcast i mean the good news is that now we do this for a living uh both of us yeah and so people can reach out to us for paid advice on how to do this that is true we do have a consulting business now multitude productions slash consulting Okay, uh, so I will also note that when we're talking about the Fae, we're referring to fairies, right? Yes. So, which are spirits found in different folklore across Europe. Most likely, they were pre-Christian pagan deities that were simply delegated to lesser spirits because, as we said before, lol, it's not pagan, it's fine. So, these versions of the Fae were usually tricksters, uh, had some sort of magical ability, though were not omnipotent, and were usually somewhat human in appearance. Okay, okay. Uh, but tiny, so, sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, modern depictions of that mostly due to the French. We'll talk about that a little Ooh. bit later. So what I'm going to focus on first is the Irish, English, Scottish version of the Fae, since that is probably one of the more well-known versions of the story. Mm-hmm. The classification of the Irish Fae, which are known as the Shihoge, uh, is laid out by W.B. Yeats. Yeats. Yeats was like, hmm, I'm Irish. So no, there's not a lot of like nation building happening here. I'm just going to make up some stories. I knew you were going to have some Yeats opinions. I'm really glad. Yeah. I mean, it, listen, uh, founding father of Irish literature in a lot of, and of modern Irish literature in a lot of ways, but he's also like, just going to write some stuff. And now people are like, well, Yeats said it. And he's just like, like he, he made things up a lot, which is fine. And there's an argument to be made for the fact that like the histories that we decide to retell become our histories. Um, yeah. But anyway, Yeats is not like a, I mean, I guess that's how actual Greek scholars feel about Homer, where we're like, well, Homer said it. And they're like, Homer was a guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the Grimm brothers later, too. Ooh. And that has very similar implications. Love it. So in A Treasury of Irish Fairy and Folk Tales by Yeats. Yeah. Because why not? I own that book. I do, too. I actually own two copies of it. <laughs> actually, one of them might one be One might yours. be mine. I might have okay. to return yours. <laughs> Uh, so Yeats specifies that there are two types of fairy, the trooping fairies and the solitary fairies. Oh. The fairies, the dinishi, uh, or the fairy people, have different origins depending on who you ask. Okay. The Irish peasantry in Christian Ireland say that the dinishi were fallen angels that were not good enough to be saved, but not bad enough to be lost. Ooh, making earth purgatory, which, yeah. Yeah. In the book of Armagh, they are known as gods of the earth. Hmm. Irish folklorists prefer to believe that they were the gods of pagan Ireland, the Tuatha Dé uh, who are no longer worshipped because Christianity came to Ireland and dwindled away the popular imagination. That makes a lot of sense, especially because we talk about the Fae in such a, like, everyone knows it but no one talks about it type way. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense for a nation under siege or under like colonial rule persecution where you kind of like act as if everyone knows what you're talking about but you aren't allowed and in some cases would be you know criminalized for talking about something publicly right like uh there are stories in the old testament that are clearly if you know the history of the jewish people in that area in that time none of the kings is existed but everyone knows that it's like wink wink we're actually talking about this guy yeah yeah um Actually, I really love this description from Yeats. He says, You cannot lift your hand without influencing and being influenced by hordes. The visible world is merely their skin. 
In dreams, we go amongst them and play with them and combat with them. They are perhaps human souls in the crucible, these creatures of whim. Hmm. I love that. Oh, he's such a good writer. He is a good writer. Uh, Made some stuff up, but a very good writer. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, The trooping fairies were known to wear green and were known for their splendid processions and hordes. So the Irish Fae had three great festivals every year. May Eve every seventh year, they fight all around for the harvest, the best ears of grain to belong to them. Okay, okay. On Midsummer Eve, when bonfires are lit to honor St. John, the fairies celebrate and steal away beautiful mortals in order to marry them. (laughs) You know, like you do. Like you do. Uh, On November Eve, which we know as Samhain, which is considered the Gaelic first night of winter, they dance with ghosts, set their tables of food in the name of the devil. Also, in case you're wondering why we don't have blackberries after Samhain, Amanda, because obviously that's something you're wondering. I was wondering. Um, It's because a type of fae called the puka have spoiled them all. No, that also uh, makes me laugh. I know people who like after Halloween is like immediately Christmas for people. Yes. And that makes sense because it's the first day of winter in uh, in the Irish tradition, which makes me laugh. I mean, to be fair, I'm one of those people that September 1st, it is Halloween now. I'm all for the extension of the Halloween season. Uh, I, I don't think we need Christmas in October, though. No, please don't. Don't do that. After Thanksgiving. Yes, after Thanksgiving. Let Thanksgiving A month happen. Is fine. Yeah. I love Thanksgiving. It's I know, one of my too. favorite holidays. It's my favorite, actually. Really? Yeah. That's fair. Halloween, I think, is mine. I like it a lot. But yeah, we, we need uh, we need that, that fall dwelling time. Yes. Post-Halloween, it's like, no, don't make me let go of my fall yet. Like, oh, I need I a like little bit more. Fall. I got to wear my leather jacket for the first time this <gasps> season today. Oh, my gosh. And it was just, it was slightly too warm for it. But also, I just reveled in the opportunity to wear it. So. Yes. Stitch Fix sent me a, like, olive mock neck sweater with oh. suede brown elbow patches. Oh. And I'm never going to wear anything else. I I want to steal that from you. Can I ask Stitch Fix specifically <laughs> to send it to me? Four sizes too big for you. But yes. yes. But I want Stitch Fix to send that to me. Anyway. So the solitary fairies were different. If we compare the two-way Danon, uh, who became the trooping fairies, mm-hmm. to the pantheon of Greek gods, mm-hmm. those that became the solitary fairies were more like the titans. Okay. So there's a distinct separation between the two groups that kind of are spawned from the same, like, spring i guess sure but they're distinctly different the solitary fairies tend to appear on their own causing mischief uh examples of solitary fairy include the leprechaun the puka the banshee and the doulahan okay okay so I'm yeah assuming... that's funny i didn't think of these as fairies i guess they fall under the umbrella i thought of them as like their own distinct uh like classes yeah no th- i mean so when i say at the beginning of the episode that the fae encapsulate right, right. so many different spirits and different traditions this is what i'm talking about gotcha uh so i am going to assume that most people know what a leprechaun and a banshee are mm-hmm. just leprechaun from pop culture culture and banshee we've talked about before we have so let me clarify what the puka and the uh doulahan are yeah kind of fun so the puka is a shape-shifting animal spirit uh which can be malevolent or benevolent depending on the story Mm -hmm. uh here's a quote from an irish tale out of a certain hill in leinster there used to emerge as far as his middle a plump sleek terrible steed and speak in a human voice to each person about november day and he was accustomed to give intelligent and proper answers to such as consulted him concerning what would befall them until the November of next year. And the people who used to leave gifts and presents at the hill until the coming of Patrick and the holy clergy. That is terrifying. Yeah. Like half horse that speaks uh, 
speaks English. November is coming. <laughs> November is coming. Let me tell you what's going to happen this year. I don't know why that happens that way. <laughs> well, let me, can I give you a very small anecdote? Sure. That's very specific. Yes. Um, so at NYU, mm-hmm. between roughly, uh, like way before my time, but up until about 2011, 2012, uh, there was a guy called the Timekeeper. Uh, and I'm he, already terrified. Go on. Yeah. He was a guy who lived around Greenwich Village, where the school's located. Mm-hmm. And he would stand on the eastern edge of Washington Square Park, which is in the middle of our campus. He'd like run across the park to get to different uh, buildings, mm-hmm. mostly. And he would, uh, in between classes, like yell how much time we had left. Oh, my and God. And he would be like, 15 minutes, 15 minutes, 1230 classes starting, 15 minutes. <gasps> um, and then, like, as it got closer and closer, he was like, 90 seconds. You don't have time for the elevator at the Silver Building. You have to go up the stairs. 90 seconds. No That's more amazing. Starbucks for you. No more starbucks not enough time for starbucks go to class That's and amazing. he was like a neighborhood fixture he was there i i started going around the neighborhood about 2006 uh and he was there then and he was there for just so long um and he passed away while i was at school and oh. there was like it was it was it was you know i wasn't on campus for 9 11 <laughs> but it was genuinely a, a like real loss in time of mourning for the community um and for a school that doesn't have a lot of community um that's really obvious it, it was a really lovely um like a you know bittersweet but heartening uh kind of display of community i'm shocked that no one like took up that mantle after he left i know that's i guess so just sad the shoes were too big to fill timekeeper <sighs> anyway um so puka like half horse shapeshifter can tell the future no nope. nope not a fan no it's not even like half horse half something it's just half a horse <laughs> Well, it comes out of the ground, out of the It comes out of, like, water? a hole in the hill. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd like that one. Oh, no. Uh, and then... It's like whack-a-mole, but with time. <laughs> I don't need whack-a-mole reminders of my mortality. Thanks, St. Peter, Paul, whichever it was. Uh, Patrick. Patrick. the one that showed up, and it was like, no more, no more puka. <laughs> and then there is the Doolahan, which is a headless woman, uh, the upper part of her body naked. Uh, that drives a black coach drawn by a headless horse. And if you hear it passing and open your door to see what's going on, you will be, uh, you will have a basin of blood thrown in your face, marking you for death. No heads. No heads. Two tits. Two tits. Four legs. The dual hand. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. It was beautiful. Great tagline. Oh. Wait, what does it remind you? Or you marked you for death? Marked for death. I got it mixed up with a helpful reminder of the puka. No. Yeah. Very different. <laughs> oh, no. No. Based on a blood thrown on you, marked for death. So the puka's like, your death is coming. The doula hand is like, okay, death. death. It here. And then the banshee cries. Also, also death. Yeah. Actually, the doula hand and the banshee are usually linked somehow. Yeah. Um, usually like the banshee. It'll be awkward past. if they were, uh, if they were enemies <laughs> and they'd be like, no, I got this one first. <laughs> you, you stepping on my territory, bitch. I know. <laughs> they'd like wait outside of birth to mark the kid for death. Oh no. Oh, sad. Then we get to the Seely and Unseely courts. And yeah. that is from Scottish folklore. I know about this from YA literature. I'm so proud of you. You're yeah. going to tell me all about the YA literature stuff. Don't yeah, worry. I will. So the categorization is based on whether or not the Fae is quote light or dark, but also rather mostly it's benevolent or malevolent. Gotcha. Um, this is not to say that one is good and the other is evil, because with the Fae, like humans, they can't just be all good or all bad. Right. Uh, the term seely comes from the Scottish word, which means happy, lucky, or blessed, while unseely means unhappy, misfortunate, unholy. And is it like they bring those to people they interact with, or like they are characterized by that 
as a as a subsection so the term originally was like an adjective to describe so like when we talk about the fae sometimes we the words that it comes from the etymology of it Mm -hmm. um means like enchanted huh so like when we're talking about a blessed enchanted one that oh, would be an unseely. Okay. That would be a seely fay. Gotcha. So the seely court is the more benevolent of the two. They will seek out help from humans at times. They'll warn those who have accidentally offended them, and they'll return favors and kindness to humans. Huh. I feel like you don't hear any stories of fairies uh, warning someone that they have offended them, and instead it's like, oh no, must have offended the fairies. That's why I am like destitute now. I think we do. But it's like one of those things where it's hubris and the person keeps doing the thing that they do. That and is true. And eventually they get it fucked. It ends in tragedy. Yes. But this doesn't mean that they're all nice. So there are plenty of stories of members of the Seelie Court causing mischief and acting against humans who have insulted the court. Uh-huh. Uh, the Seelie Court is also known as the Shining Throne, the Golden Ones, and more commonly the Summer Court. Okay. Okay. Uh, they tend to appear in border regions such as twilight between day and night or on dates between the seasons like April 30th and May 1st or October 31st and November 1st, which right. are the different seasons changing over. Before people, uh, they could be found any time or any place. But when people began to populate the world more, the realm of the Fae began to dwindle more and more in the mortal world and became less visible to humans. God, humans ruining everything. First the Fae, then the rare birds. Where's the world going? Oh, now I'm sad about birds. Ospreys, man. They're coming back on Long Island. Yeah, they are. They're doing okay. Yeah, yeah. Our ospreys are pretty good. And our egrets are doing mm-hmm. much better. Kingfisher population, not great, though. I know a lot about birds. <laughs> <laughs> my my grandpa, this is a side tangent. My grandpa um, was a big bird watcher yeah. uh, when he was still alive and um, had this beautiful, beautiful print of the Audubon bird collection book. Oh, yeah. That I used to just read all the time as a kid. Just like all the time. I would like go through those pictures and there are these, if you don't know what the Audubon bird collection books are, there are these beautiful scientific uh, drawings of birds that I absolutely love. And actually, when I was in LA, I got to see one of the original ones. Do you know how big the original books are? No. They are the size of my torso, like from my head to my waist. Wow. Like a a loop manuscript bible yeah. style yeah, yeah yeah they're huge. that's beautiful where was it uh it was at i, I will look it up know. later yeah. <laughs> it's fine i will sh- link it in the show notes so the unseelie court is far more malevolent whereas the seelie court might seek revenge on humans the unseelie court does not need an offense in order to attack humans ah they tend to appear at night assaulting travelers they will band together into a group or host carrying humans through the air and beating them or else forcing them to commit violent crimes such as shooting cattle. This is done mainly for the entertainment of the Fae rather for an actual purpose or for revenge. I see. I And I'm seeing now more the distinction between like they are logical and do what they will that in a way that doesn't like specifically target humans unless you mess up, which is DC Lee. And then the other ones like may just mess with humans to amuse themselves because like fair. While the unseelie may be particularly malevolent, they can also sometimes be fond of particular humans. In these cases, the people are usually stolen away to the court and become a pet to the unseelie fae. Yeah. Um, We often see this in stories about changelings, which we've touched upon before. The unseelie court also has more specified members of their court. So bogarts, buttery spirits, and abbey lovers are always aligned with the unseelie court. Obviously, I know what a bogart is because I'm not a idiot yes what are the other ones um i didn't write down what buttery spirits are but i do have julia what, but i do have what abby lovers are fine 
So Abbey lovers are fascinating. So they're somewhat similar to brownies, which we're going to talk about a whole section on brownies later. Okay. Um, but they do housework in exchange for a saucer of milk or a warm place to sleep by the fire. Okay. But okay. they're said to haunt wine cellars and kitchens of abbeys and attempt to sway monks into drunkenness and gluttony. Okay, I know we've said before that we wanted to be ghosts in movie theaters if we had to choose. But Abbey lover. I think I would be a ghost in a monastery or Abbey instead. Sweet. sweet. There's usually like beer or honey or other kind of like interesting industry, bunch of knowledge, bunch of dope nuns. Love it. Abbey lover life. (laughs) (laughs) I need to know what a buttery spirit is. I'll look it up later. I mean, I get that it probably just like is in your butter as you're churning it, but come on. Oh shit. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. I will note that the division of fairies is not universal, but also does not exist solely in Ireland and Scotland. Uh, In French fairy tales, for instance, fairies are divided into good and evil, but only because in this literary telling of the story, fairies exist solely in stories where they are encountering and interacting with humans. Right. So the morality is pressed upon them. Yeah. Uh, In Wales, they are not classified as good and evil, but rather neutral parties that can cause mischief for a number of reasons. The Welsh fairies are often known for stealing golden-haired children away and leaving changelings behind, Mm. like we've talked about before. Yeah. A side note: they are also known to eat toadstools and fairy butter. Fairy butter is a type of fungus that is bright orange and yellow uh, and kind of has like a brain pattern to it. Oh, dang. And it looks awesome and has a great name and I love it. I mean, it reminds me of bog butter, the best butter of all. We Butter is like the through line of spirits. Like we talked is about it? cultured butter early on. <laughs> uh-huh. Talked about bog butter. Uh-huh. Got fairy butter. Yeah. There's obviously lots of through lines. There, Probably yes. we talk about musicals a lot more than we talk about <laughs> also d- d- different Potter. butters. But I love butter. It's my favorite. Uh, So I know we normally save some of the conversation for the end, but I think before we head into the break, uh, this is a great moment to have a conversation about the ambiguous nature of good and evil in these stories. Oh, dang. uh, And how it reflects on human nature. Because we understand in the world that, like, there is good people and bad people, and I have that in quotes, like, good people and bad people, but we don't divide them into, like, different notable groups. That's true. It's sort of, like, more simplistic where we think like these are people who are adhering to the moral code or mm-hmm. people who don't. And it's it's often very kind of black and white where like people who act in a way that we may view as evil are, you know, ascribed to be evil people right. and vice versa. Like if someone acts in a virtuous way, they must be a good person. Right. And that's like a thing that moralists have a discussion about all the time. Yeah. Like if a person who has done bad all of their life suddenly like, saves a bunch of children from an orphanage that's burning down does that mean they're a good person that's why i really like the show the good place because it engages with this in such an interesting way um and there's a character who had like a pretty awful life and then in like the days before their death did such an outstanding you know act that it was like a hard choice for them to decide where the person went Mm -hmm. and i think it's it's great because that show really asks us like can people change? Does it matter? You know, like what matters in like calculating the value of a human life? Right. And so it's interesting that through this understanding of human morality, we kind of apply it to these non-human creatures. Yeah. And so our, and like specifically, the Fae are not good or evil, but like when they're doing these good things, like if we're looking at the Sealy Court, for instance, right? When they're doing like good things, like warning a person or like helping out with chores or whatever, are they good? 
or but like they can still be vengeful they can still like ruin people's lives because they've had some sort of offense and like does that morality mean like oh they're good until they do a bad thing and then they're bad like there's no like moral there's no moral standard when it comes to these creatures and it's really interesting that way yeah it's also hard because we're um applying a human moral standard to non-human creatures and that's really interesting, I think, in in discussions of like, that's why I love sci-fi, you know, and that's why I love, you know, different like books that involve aliens or ghosts or the supernatural um, or that imagine futures where humans and various kinds of non-humans have to interact together. Because um, I think one, one of our favorite books, uh, A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, oh, so is so great at this because it deals with like a main cast of characters that are for the most part all from different species. And it's all about like what, you know, do you like just kind of default to like the most modest or the most conservative or the most like uh, picky um, system or person in the room? Or how do you like find a way to live together that's respectful of everybody's difference without needing to like conform to like some homogenous, you know, like unique culture? Actually, I'm so glad you brought up the long way to a small angry planet. Yeah. Because one of the like things that stuck with me the most is characters from two different species um, are talking about like grief. Yeah. Um, and they're talking about one species, the human species in this in this story, uh, is talking about how it's such a tragedy when a child dies yeah. because all of that potential is lost. Um, and then the other species is arguing it's, it's so much worse when someone who has lived a long life and made so many connections has died because so many people have like built connections and like have memories of this person that they can no longer like they don't have that connection anymore. Yeah, the grief so, is more like widespread and diffuse. Right. And so it's really interesting to see those two ways of looking at the world just explored and kind of kind of clashing heads, but not really, but like just seeing how different the cultures can be. And so I think it's really interesting when we're looking at the Fae in this situation, because if we're looking at it from a human perspective, of course, we're going to put like, this is good, this is bad. But the the Fae imperative, if we're looking at it from like the YA perspective, because obviously like there aren't a lot of stories where they really explore the politics of the Fae and the courts and stuff like that. And you're saying like the like quote unquote canonical like Yes, and the canonical yeah. folklore of it. Yeah. It, there's plenty of stories in the YA. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about the YA interpretations of the Fae courts? I will. And I think the kind of final thing here is that we expect the Fae to act in an orderly way. And sort of one of the scariest things to human beings is disorder. And we've talked about how in the past, like, obviously, if you can, like, you know, if you're surprised, you don't know how to react to it and you can't prepare for it. And that is dangerous, like from an evolutionary perspective, if you like identify patterns and your brain evolves well to tell narratives and abstract this future from this evidence that helps you survive. Um, and so in my recollection, just growing up kind of with like Fae lore in my just like pop culture, um, it, them being really mercurial and unpredictable is the sort of like defining trait in my mind mm -hmm. um, and like trickery as you, as you brought up at the outset. Um, and so I love reading Fae books. And that was one of my like obsessions as a kid. Yeah. I had a bunch of little, like, I don't know, like flower fairies, mm -hmm. you know, like little tiny fairies. I had a bunch of books like that when I was like a child. Um, and then in my adolescence, reading a lot of YA, 
And the ones that come to mind are like Herbie Brennan has a series on the Fae Wars, the mm-hmm. Fairy Wars. Um, Holly Black wrote an outstanding oh. trilogy on the Fae, yeah. the Tide series. There is this one called The Blue Girl by Charles DeLint. Scott Westerfeld had some like fant- like urban fantasy books yeah. um, that involve various kinds of Fae. Actually, if you like um, like kind of prose poetry, uh, Francesca Leah Block has some really, really beautiful like fae and mythology in modern day stories yeah, that I highly does. recommend. Psyche and Address is one of my favorite things like I've yeah. ever read by her. Of course, um, Artemis Fowl was yep. kind of hit at just the right time for us in terms of age and that had to do quite a lot with fae and sort of like rules and politics and technicalities and how like this human is so creative and like brave that they can trick the fae um and i just i don't know i really loved those stories because it seemed like examples of people um surviving and like you know learning from what seemed like a completely unpredictable and unwinnable system um and finding a way to like twist those rules to their advantage like the classic kind of like riddle you know mm-hmm. um that really i don't know made the rest of the world seem a little bit more, more possible yeah yeah mm-hmm. all right uh so we are going to talk more about some english folklore and then the greater european fairy stories uh just as soon as we get a refill let's do it oh julia i'm learning so much about what i thought were just cute little things with wings they're not. They're more than that. No, and it, it does make me a little worried uh, to think about the fact that the Fae could just be anywhere at any time ready to fuck with me. Mm-hmm. So I am glad that I'm actually getting a little bit better at a thing I never thought I would learn, which is meditation. And that is all thanks to Calm. So Calm is a really beautiful app that helps you learn to be mindful, learn to meditate, helps you relax into sleep. It is so pretty. It has all kinds of like nature sounds and photographs. They have these wonderful sleep stories where uh, lovely accented people tell you all about the Siberian Express or walking through lavender fields in France. Like it is so calming. (laughs) Um, But I have been doing their meditation kind of beginner course um, and learning slowly over little drips each day um, how to meditate. I never thought it was something that I would find helpful, but just having something to guide me and not just me sitting down on the floor and being like, let us try now to think of nothing. It is very useful and it is a little a little adventure of my own. That's amazing. And like the best part about calm, just like five minutes out of your day. I always think of meditation as like something that I have to spend a lot of time on. Well, five minutes of your day, Calm can change your life. So if you head to calm.com slash spirits, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of premium programmings like guided meditations, like Amanda said, or sleep stories, which help you get to sleep uh, and so much more. That is all at Calm, C-A-L-M dot com slash spirits and again that premium subscription has unlimited access to all of calm's amazing content so you can get started today at calm.com slash spirits amanda you know what i love about fall mm, is it uh sweaters with elbow patches yes 100 percent. also <laughs> like the weather starts getting colder and it means i get to spend more time like on my couch in a blanket learning new things hey don't have to leave to learn so you know what I've always wanted to learn, Amanda? I've always wanted to learn how to knit. I know how to sew. I've dabbled in embroidery. But like knitting has always eluded me. 
So this week, I recommend Knitting One. Learn the basics with a simple scarf because it's starting to get cold out and there's nothing better than wearing something that you made yourself with your own two hands. And I learned this, Amanda, through Skillshare. We love Skillshare. They are an online learning community with over 20,000 classes and you can access all those classes unlimited for two whole months at just 99 cents when you go to Skillshare.com spirits. Do you know what costs more than two months of Skillshare, Amanda? You mean buying a scarf instead of making one yourself? 100%. Don't buy that scarf. Just take a Skillshare class and make one yourself. Get to pick the color and everything. Skillshare is great. They have video courses. They have comments where you can interact with other people that are taking those courses. They have really wonderful instructors and like high quality classes. You don't want to mess around with, you know, shaky camera, YouTube video from 2007 type business. <laughs> yeah. Um, so thank you again to Skillshare for supporting the program. And if you want to vote with your dollar, your ni- single 99 cents of a dollar, and tell Skillshare that you appreciate them supporting the show and that you want to check out what they have to offer, please go to Skillshare.com spirits and start your premium membership. Let's get back to the show. So Amanda, getting back into it, we're going to finish up with the English. Oh, yeah. Uh, so English folklore laid out by Catherine Mary Briggs introduces a third distinction to the fairy courts. Okay. Uh, and this is the domesticated fairy or the ones that live in a human household and influence it. Like the Domovoy, which we talked about in our Cache the Deathless episode. Yes. And we're going to talk. Uh, yes. I love when you read connections. Oh, babe. So I remember something. I love it. So now we've talked a little bit about house spirits before, uh, but we're going to get a little bit more into it now. A lot of folklorists tie household spirits together across different cultures. So for example, uh, Thomas Keatley, uh, a English historian and folklorist claims, quote, the kobold is exactly the same as the Danish Nis, the Scottish Brownie, and the English Hobgoblin. He performs the very same services for the family to whom he attaches himself. The Nis, the kobold, or the goblin appear in Scotland under the name the Brownie. Huh. So traditionally, household spirits, such as the brownie, perform chores for the household in exchange for an offering of a bowl of milk or cream left by the hearth. Other offerings include porridge, small cakes. Wait, Okay. I just had a revelation for a second. Oh, wow. So do we like, do we modernize the, the like household spirit gift giving with Santa Claus and the cookies and the milk? I mean, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Like to, to like placate the outside force that comes into your home and leaves something behind. That is such a weird distinction. Yeah. Holy shit. Man, uh, syncretism is some shit, man. Yeah. You know, like some person was like, yeah, my grandma used to do this. I guess it's for Santa now. Like, wow, I never wild. put those together. That yeah. really makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking wild. Oh, man. Anyway. Um, and it makes sense, too, because Christmas came from kind of like Yuletide, you know, winter solstice mm-hmm. traditions. And you mentioned earlier that transitioning between seasons is a time of great kind of fae involvement. Yeah. There we go. Man, wow. Santa Claus, the Santa jolliest fae. The jolliest fae. <laughs> it also ties to Krampus, which I'll talk about later. There's a lot of tiebacks to episodes we've done before in this episode. So the offering is made because household spirits are easily offended and will leave a home forever if they feel like they've been insulted or taken advantage of. It's quick, really fucking relatable. I love it. Quick Harry Potter tangent. Yeah. Brownies are clearly associated with a house elves. Yeah. Especially because they typically are either naked or dressed in rags in depictions. Ah. And it's said that if you present a brownie with clothing or try to baptize him, apparently that's a thing people try to do, <laughs> he will leave forever. 
ever. Uh, Eric Schneider and I tried to take up your mantle on Waystation oh, by so doing sorry. some uh, mythological research. <laughs> and there was a recent episode with a brownie that led us oh, to yeah. be like, what the fuck? Is this where episode. house elves came from? Yep. I remember that episode. He's he's very nice, but he wants like sugary cereal. That's his thing, right? On the episode, that's what he wants. Yeah. yeah. He wants like super sugary cereal. And Kenzie's like, fuck you, man. Do your own errands. Come on, Kenzie. God You're Russian. It, Kenzie. You gotta know. Domovoy. No, you should know by now. You do a whole thing on the Baba Yaga. You, you do. know a little bit more about your culture. Anyway, so the brownie is a general term used for household spirits throughout Great Britain, but there are some regional variations for the household spirit, including including Hobbs, Silkies, Boach, and Fenadrie. Ooh, sounds Welsh. The Boach one is. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably not how you pronounce it, but I'm sorry, Wales. Uh, and then the other one was like, uh, I don't know, some sort of other British thing that I've never heard of before. Lots yeah. of stuff's in Britain, Julia. That is true. We don't have to concern ourselves with all of it. <laughs> that is fair. And may I uh, just once more shout out one of my favorite plays of all time by Jez Butterworth called Jerusalem, where I saw Mark Rylance in maybe the best role of his entire life, playing a kind of like guy who lives like in a trailer in a forest uh, by himself, kind of like, you know, insular and uh, ends up being super connected to like the olds with an E English power traditions, uh, forces, fae, and it is extraordinary. Go read it. Hell yeah. Back to the brownies. They are typically solitary creatures. Uh, You normally wouldn't find more than one brownie in a household, and they avoid being seen when they can. Uh, Technically, the brownie doesn't live in the house. He's usually said to live on a certain place on the property, so either a specific tree, a stream, a rock, a pond, that kind of thing. Got it. Um, Occasionally, they can be convinced to do more than just housework, so uh, they have to be, quote, motivated by personal friendships and fancies. Okay, okay. Uh, For example, there's a story about a brownie that is sent to fetch a midwife when the lady of the house went into labor because he considered himself friends with the woman. That's so interesting. Like, of course you need to be friendly with people for them to be helpful to you. But like, what, where does this come from? I don't know. Maybe just like the fae lore getting deeper and deeper and more um, involved until good and evil or servitude is no longer like a sufficient answer. Right. You know, like, like their character gets developed such that we have to think of them as like having their own whims and fancies and motivations. Well, also it's the human uh, nature to kind of more personify and more humanize things. Be like, oh, that tree over there, it's a spirit. It it likes peanut butter, and that's why we, we <laughs> leave peanut butter there. I don't know. Yeah. It's like the story about the woman who spoke to the river. Yeah, yeah. true. <laughs> we always bring up that story. It's just very impactful. Yeah, it was a uh, hometown urban legend. And so often when we read those, we're like, why would you do this? Or like, wait, but why didn't you ask this question? Or like when you, when you see horror movies, you're like, no, don't go to that room. But this was an, an example of the story where the person did like more and better than we would have imagined. And yes. we were like, fuck yes, we taught you well, my child. Yes, they did great. We're proud of them. We're going to move on to Germany now. And there's a lot to touch upon with a uh, Germanic fairy. Uh, Is it kind of fucked up? This one is totally fucked up. Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing, um, there, there's a lot of Germanic stuff. I'm only touching on one aspect. Okay. But I really like it. Cool. Uh, we hear and, you, Germany. There is more. We believe you. And that is the wild hunt. Okay. There are very different versions of the wild hunt, but typically the story focuses on a mortal viewing a group of supernatural, usually fae, elves, immortals, uh, <gasps> hunters. Do they come after the... Oh, sorry. I was going to... I thought you meant that they like s- glimpsed a fairy thing and the fairy all turned on them and run after the person. And I was like, that's a short hunt, huh? <laughs> no. Uh, so they're hunters that are in pursuit of some sort of beast. 
Got it. Uh, this is, as you might guess, not a great omen. Okay. okay. Uh, traditionally, is said to be a prelude to a great war or a plague. Man, that was also in Lost Girl this season. Yeah. Huh. Uh, and on a smaller scale, the death to a person who witnesses it. Oh, or no. worse than death, uh, the person encountering it might be abducted by the hunt and taken to the fairy kingdom. Eternal servitude. Yeah. Uh, similarly to what we talked about with the Krampus episode, a version of the wild hunt is led by Krampus once a year. Huh. Fucked up. Fucked up. Here is a quote uh, about the wild hunt from folklorist Jacob Grimm. Yeah, of Grimm's fairy tales. No shit. He was a folklorist. Did you know that? The guy that wrote it? Yeah. I thought you were going to say like his grandson became a folklorist and I'd be like, yes. No, Jacob and Willem were the ones who wrote it. (laughs) And then um, Jacob was a folklorist. Oh, well, good. That makes sense. Okay, so here's the quote. Another class of spec... Sorry, I I guess I just thought that they were really fucked up grandpas. I mean, they were eventually. (laughs) So another class of specters will prove more fruitful to our investigation. They, like the Ignis Fatui, include unchristened babes. But instead of straggling singly on the earth as fires, they sweep through the forest and the air in whole companies with a horrible din. This is a widely spread legend of a furious host, a furious hunt, which is of high antiquity and interweaves itself now with gods and now with heroes. Look where you will, it betrays its connections to heathenism. Oh, dang. Yeah. He has some opinions. Yeah, he does. So Grimm interpreted the wild hunt to be pre-Christian, saying that the figure that appears at the head of the hunt usually has connections to Odin. But due to Christianity, it's lost his characteristics, his near familiar features, and assumed the aspect of a dark and dreadful power, a specter and a devil. I appreciate this scholarship. Otherwise, I would have suggested that, but instead, he did it for me. Yeah, no, there we go. Uh, he also spends time saying that before Christianity's arrival, the Wild Hunt would portend a bounty. They either, quote, visited the land at some holy tide, bringing welfare and blessing, accepting gifts and offerings of the people, or floating unseen through the air, perceptible in cloudy shapes, in the roar and howl of the winds, carrying on war, hunting, or the game of nine pins, the chief employment of the ancient heroes. An array which, less tied down to a definite time, explains more the natural phenomenon. So because of Christianity, the story is, LOL, it's not pagan, it's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And it turns the hunt into, quote, a pack of horrid specters dashed with dark and devilish ingredients. Uh, Beautiful prose. Yeah. And that just made me think of, like, what is Santa doing when he's not delivering presents? I mean, playing angry bowling in the sky, I guess. (laughs) That's why we get thunder. Yeah. God's bowling. (laughs) Santa, he's bowling. (laughs) No, but I really enjoy this idea that the hunt was a godly thing before Christianity came. And then it was this whole malevolent idea of these supernatural creatures causing a fuss that humans just had to cower and fear from. Yeah. Jacob Grimm did it. Did it good. Uh, We're going to move on to France real quick. Uh, Stories of the French fairies are distinctly more literary, as I said before, uh, than folkloric uh, because they weren't orally passed down. The remaining stories that we know from France were not orally passed down. Right. So it's more like literary based. Yeah. So uh, French folklore started with uh, Occitan poetry and literature from the south of France in the 11th and 12th centuries. Yeah. Uh, The first well-known stories were the songs of the troubadours, uh, which usually dealt with themes of chivalry and courtly love rather than supernatural folklore. The French also loved some epic poetry, which was more focused on the chassons de geste or the songs of heroic deeds. Hmm. Uh, which were stories of important, quote, history, 
uh, of France. I say history in quotes because most of the stories were partly legend. Uh, Charlemagne, Bayard the Legendary Horse, uh, Durandal the Magical Sword, early depictions of Morgan le Fay were all featured in those. Wow. So we saw these stories of trickster spirits, such as Reynard the Fox, which terrifies me because of the Magician series, so fuck you, Lev Grossman. Yeah. But you see some of those kind of come out of the stories later on uh, as more of the folkloric stuff comes into play. Gotcha. Um, the other surviving stories of the French fairies were mostly collected from the folk tales, then cleaned up and printed for the upper class audience by a man named Charles Perrault. Makes sense, makes sense. But some of the French fairy creatures that really persisted in our modern understanding of them survived this period. So Oberon, king of the fairies, the werewolf, Cheval Malay, which is a wonderful evil horse. I just, so maybe we're going to have to have a second episode of horses because from this half hill horse uh, timekeeper and then this guy, Mm -hmm. there's just too much. Uh, There's also the goblin hole, which is said to be an underground tunnel or hole in Morton, France that's surrounded by mystery Oh, Uh, and several different types of dragons. Many dragons. Lots of dragons. And those are all types of stories that survived France's depictions uh, from the 11th century on. Yeah, that really feels quite kind of medieval. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about like medieval lore, I think like dragons, like horses, knights, you know, saving people. Uh, and that kind of like high medieval, high fantasy um, seems to draw a lot from this sort of literary tradition in France. Yeah, And the, uh, the literary tradition of France is also much later on is what gives us the like cultural tiny depiction of fairies now and that spread from the continent over to england which we get in like the peter pan stories and stuff like that yeah small tiny lighted winged creatures yeah that's the books that i had as a kid of like flower fairies is what i call them i don't know if that's actually what they were but you know they wear like flower petals as dresses and like live in trees and um as a kid that was like my biggest uh like thing i would think about if i couldn't fall asleep you know was Mm -hmm. was like what my little fairy house would look like oh yeah Um, Okay, but say you don't want to fuck around with the fairies. No. By all accounts, totally fair thing. For the most part, we've seen that they're extremely capricious uh, and you don't want to get on their bad side. And it seems like you can't just like not mess with them because living in the world like that Yates quote you opened up with like uh, makes you vulnerable to fairy influence. Yeah. Uh, so the easiest way to protect yourself from the fae is by wearing your clothes inside out. We've seen many stories where that's the case where it's like, I'm wandering through a forest and the spirit is messing with me and I can't find my way out. I'm just going to turn my clothes inside out and now I found my way. Oh, well, I mean, we've talked about before, like how praying to St. Anthony is like, a, uh, in in my experience, is like a moment of like collecting yourself, calming down. You've lost a thing. So you're panicking, but you're like, calm down, think about it, blah, blah, blah. And then lo and behold, several minutes later, calmer and more collected and more able to like think uh you find the thing you were looking for um maybe it's anthony it depends uh but i like this too as a moment where like you are so again wrapped up in in getting lost whatever that you kind of like stop you symbolically do something that makes you feel as if you have the confidence to find your way out you Mm -hmm. calm down and then like out you get yeah it it, like empowers you to do the thing that you're struggling with it's a reset i like that uh, church bells in particular are said to be effective against protecting from the fae. Okay. But also the fairies that ride on horseback can be identified by the fact that they wear bells on their harnesses. Uh-oh. Uh, some specify that only the seely wear bells, uh, and that's because it's said to ward off the unseely, noting that the impactful rivalry between the two. And what exactly were they fighting over? Just like ways of life? Yeah. It's just like, it's the politics of it. Okay. It's like, ah, oh, you, you shouldn't do that. 
Yeah, but we're going to do it. That's basically <laughs> what the Sealy versus Unsealy court is like. Fair enough. In Newfoundland, bread is said to be a protector against the fae, either stale bread, hardtack, or a slice of fresh homemade bread kept in the pocket. And this is because bread is associated... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what's that, Julia? It's my bread pocket. It's just my bread pocket. Uh, <laughs> this is said uh, to be the case because bread is associated with the home and hearth, as right. well as homesteading being the taming of nature in order for humans to survive, which goes against the nature of the fae. Blam, you got to it before I could say it. I always do. No, that's not true. You come up with amazing things, and I'm so proud. <laughs> for your insight thanks babe uh meanwhile in celtic folkloric tradition uh they offer baked goods to the fae so one could consider that protection to be a form of appeasement i suppose uh meaning like hey wouldn't it be a shame for you not to have these delicious pastries anymore if you fuck with my house well no i think it would be more like here's some fresh bread please don't fuck with my house (laughs) okay appeasement (laughs) got it appeasement rather than blackmail which is what you just described (laughs) yeah yeah okay okay (laughs) A cock's crow is said to keep away the fae. This is also true of basilisks, by the way. Really? Uh, yeah. There's a whole subplot in uh, the second Harry Potter book, actually, where it's just like Harry's like, someone murdered all my uh, all my chickens. And it's because oh, Ginny went to murder all the chickens because Tom was like, yo, my basilisks can't deal with chicken crowing. I did not put that together. Yeah. Um, also civilization you know like a, a hen or a rooster is the first thing you you kind of like buy when you're homesteading somewhere or bring true. with you um so it makes sense that like the light of day and you know the the like routine starting up would be kind of a, a like deterrent to the fae that's fair uh also the whole thing with the basilisk is you make a basilisk by like having a chicken egg laid on by a frog i think and then it has to hatch while the frog is on top of it and that's how you get a basilisk didn't know that something like that anyway alternatively though uh some traditions say that the fae keep poultry so oh it's like one of those things where it's like some people say this will help you others say the fae are already doing that so who the (laughs) fuck knows so i mean worst case scenario is you do much things you that aren't actually going to help you you're not going to hurt chances probably yeah pretty much yeah uh so that kind of leads us into our final discussion I think I want to talk about how fae folklore can really show how universal a story can be and how it spreads and how it can change and adapt but still have its core values over time. Uh, Because if you really look at the evolution and the way that the fae story changes over time and then how Christianity dramatically changes the story, but it still like has like the the same beats to it. Right. um, It's it's exactly the like this whole topic is the like extremely distilled version of what we love about folklore yeah and i kind of want to touch on that a little bit yeah it really is it's like human beings trying to make sense of and reckon with the like fundamentally uncontrollable nature of the world yes like we are but worms in this big scary world and things happen without our knowing we try our best and bad things happen anyway um people we know can betray us things we thought we knew can surprise us and having a sort of, you know, genre, let's say, of folklore mm-hmm. um, and folklore characters whose primary, uh, you know, trait is is like capriciousness or changeability mm-hmm. uh, or whatever, like needing appeasement. 
I think that makes complete sense. It's a, a sort of evolution too of the like feudal model, mm-hmm. you know, of yeah. like, I am your king. I can make good things happen to you or bad things happen to you. The resources that you use every day are actually mine. And I will take this tithe from you in order not to fuck with your life. But sometimes they fuck with your life anyway. That's a really interesting point because the face story really changes when you look and see how humans have grown and adapted. So the themes of the face stories really change when you look at it from when we were in a monarchical feudal society right. versus now is like modern like modern ideas like kings could get away with whatever the fuck they wanted to back in the day yeah and i think that capriciousness really comes through in this idea that like kings were divine especially when we were talking about um like bridget and anya yeah they like have this divine right and so they could do whatever the fuck they wanted. And that's like something that the Fae definitely still like ooze, I suppose. I mean, we talk about courts and kings and queens when we talk about Fae. Yeah. We're talking about like, you know, divinely um, inspired dominion. Yeah. And like the wild hunt. Yeah. Like there are so many depictions of royalty going on hunts and like being surrounded by their the rest of their court. So like, does the Fae story, do you think, lose value because we no longer exist in that society? That's really interesting. I mean, it was almost like these like origins that we're describing is uh, is really hierarchical, right? Like there's the, the uh, Lord with the most power and then there's all of us peasants united together in our complete disenfranchisement. Then we move to a more like individualistic model in the kind of like post-industrial revolution society mm-hmm. where like your fate is supposed to be in your own hands. Yeah. Um, your neighbors are not your neighbors, but your competition. Mm-hmm. And um, there's, you know, there seems to be more of an emphasis on like, I'm thinking about sort of, you know, communist era Domovoy mm-hmm. legend where it's like, you know, give give part of your parcel to this spirit and they will help you in continuing to like make your life okay. Right. Um, and it's more like if all of us do our part and if all of us, you know, like distribute resources to those who they're owed to, everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but now like it, it's almost, I don't know, like we're almost like individualistic to a point that we're all equal again. Yeah. You know, like, like wealth stratification is again, so um, intense, but now at least there's no one to point to and be like, that person has it all because they are said to be divinely inspired. Right. It's more just like a, like a cruel twist of fate. And the people at the top don't know that they're th- at the top, you know, or they don't want to admit it. Um, and so it's this like illusion of uh, egalitarianism and like the ability to make your own fate for yourself. But a lot of us are less powerful than our grandparents were in terms of like economic viability mm-hmm. um, and and resources. So that's all to say, like, I think that these elements of the Fae story continue to be just like human fears and human elements. I just realized that we've gone from divine right uh, as leadership to um, they've worked hard so they deserve it, even when that isn't the case. That's the that's the legend that people tell themselves about. Yeah. So like the instead the, of birthright, it's just like self self uh, made a divine right. <laughs> right. Or if we look at stories like with the uh, the fairy oral traditions and the epic poetry, it's like, oh, well, Charlemagne came and he conquered and that's why he deserves to be king. That's, I mean, God, we've just basically just like straight up circled. Yeah. It's like just circling the drain here, the same kind of concepts with uh, I don't know, people like Jeff Bezos and shit like that, you know? 
I know, uh, he, but he it's... worked hard and created empire, so he deserves all of the money and no taxes. But it's something that we talk about a, a lot, and kind of like uh, some of our peers in the sort of discourse around, uh, you know, social justice and and privilege, mm-hmm. um, is that like there, it it isn't like everyone is just like starting from the same starting, you know, line in a vacuum, like going after what they want and right. their success is not solely determined by their like effort or worth or intellect. But it's the legend that the hierarchy is telling us, oh, you can be at up top like me. Right. If at you... least in feudal society, your your best option was like maybe my son will become a knight. Like yeah. it there wasn't this uh this like illusion of egalitarianism. Though I could potentially find a sword in a stone or a woman could hand it to me from a lake. <laughs> like there there are options there too. As Monty Python said, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. I'm so glad you know that off the top of your head. <laughs> <laughs> it's like well, divine is is um uh, is uh divine from the masses not from some watery bint lobbing a sword at you so i'm i feel like i'm interested in the idea that does the fey courts seem more supernatural to us now now that we've moved away from an age where the courts made sense to now where we're all individualized and it seems like it's almost more otherworldly because it's displaced out of time yeah but like think about conspiracy theories okay you know people believe in the illuminati mm-hmm. or whatever bullshit like conservative internet illuminati. yeah but i mean <sighs> like there's this there is this um desire to read into the like fundamental you know unfair and ununderstandable nature of the world mm-hmm. and say there must be order at work like, that's all you want to believe, right? It's like, there must be order here. It's that human nature thing that we talked about exactly. earlier in the episode. It must not just be that the world is unfair and cruel sometimes, and there is no way for me to influence, you know, these things that are out of my control. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that's why conspiracy theories, I think one of the reasons why it's really, you know, um, really kind of uh, seductive to yes. believe. And in a way, like... Doesn't that make sense of the fairy court that like someone else knows how to appease the fae or appease the fates Mm -hmm. or appease the like secret holders of power, blah, blah, blah. And then that is a way that somebody who has not achieved to their, you know, uh, wishes can explain why, but I'm hardworking, but I'm smart, but I'm talented. Why aren't I succeeding? Right. And that, that could, that is like a really, again, seductive um, fantasy Mm -hmm. to start believing in. Yeah. Oh man. That's a great point. Great modernization, Amanda. Good job. Thanks. I mean, it's it's fucked up, you know? Like, yeah. just last month, um, BuzzFeed let go of a bunch of the podcast producers that they had been employing who made shows like Another Round and See Something, Say Something mm-hmm. um, that inspired people like us to start making shows and a lot of creators of color you know it it, shows like that showed advertisers and other media companies that you don't have to be two white guys talking on a microphone to make a like commercially viable podcast yeah so um from buzzfeed's point of view they were just making an economic decision but it also stung in a way that was really particular particularly to creators of color and particularly to other kind of underrepresented communities and in looking at that news a lot of people were like this is why podcasting isn't like is doomed or like this people like uh, decisions like this are why this medium is is really hard to make a living in um and that was my first reaction too but then after a few hours of of like thinking about it i realized like no that is like that is a distraction you know the fact that companies let really talented people go sucks 
and is life-changingly bad for those people um, and is like bad for our discourse. But you know what would be even better than like BuzzFeed doubling their podcast department is like universal basic income or universal health care or, uh, you know, wages for household workers or for child care, for affordable rent, you know, all of these things that would make it that would like fix the system and not just give individuals more advantages to game the system. Right. Like that's that's what the Fay you know, court is, is like little adjustments you can make to make the, you know, fundamental like unfairness of life a little bit more manageable for you. Um, and it's almost like the favor, like an elemental force or like right. weather, you know, or something that's completely uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. But the the great like lie of capitalism is that anything is controllable. Yeah. And that, you know, you can just better yourself and therefore you can better your family and your life. Right. But in fact, like the system has to be torn down. Like it's, it's not, yeah, yeah. you know, individuals can only like individuals can succeed in this system. Some of them maybe sometimes, but that doesn't mean that it's like a fundamentally fair one or equitable one or the best one available to us. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting too, because if you look at the way that stories about the Fae are told, specifically the Sealy versus Unsealy court, yeah. um, it's the decisions of a group that we don't quite understand that affect all of the normal humans. And that, when you were describing the BuzzFeed situation, that's what was playing in my head. It's like, to the people who are on that ground floor who were let go from their jobs, that doesn't make sense to them. The logic of it doesn't make sense. And like, that's because you like we're on, we're on separate situations it's the manager like i mean that that's it that's hierarchy that's capitalism mm-hmm. that's like some are managers some are employees yeah. like decisions are made in rooms that the rest of us have to yeah. suffer the consequences but don't have any say in mm-hmm. i don't know and like i don't i don't blame people who find this really useful as like a heuristic for the world like i don't blame people who find stories like this or rituals like this um really useful in their in their life like it's it's like sanity preserving to have some kind of feeling like you can have you know control over your life and your future but it's also easy to kind of stop there and not to think about the like really fucking devastating and difficult work of like unseating the system yeah um and thinking about like systemic change not just for for me but for everybody else right i think a lot of times people are like I am just going to make sure that I am doing the best that I can. And like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's where you have to start. Yeah. If you are fundamentally unstable, if you are, you know, out in the elements, if you are hungry, if your family is in need, like it is so difficult to think about anything except for that. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it's like a privilege to worry about systemic issues. Yes. Because it usually means that you have enough security in yourself to like turn your eyes up from like, ground level yeah so the fair are a great metaphor for all these things that we just described here yeah dog yeah dude and hearkening back to the sort of like changeability of the Fae mm-hmm. and their logic, that's also a way to sort of like emotionally deal with the fact that bosses, exactly as you say, make choices that make absolutely no sense yeah. to us. And that they're like, we can't even ascribe a ruling logic to the Fae because their decisions are so like contradictory and unpredictable. Hot take. Yes. Business schools are in the Fae realm. <gasps> yeah, though. Yeah. Everyone who goes to business school is secretly touched by the Fae. Yeah, Fun dog. Fact. Damn. All CEOs are Fae kings. There must have been... Uh, there has to there be There must be stories and movies and stuff. No, no, I'm saying about, like, 
you know, business people that like made blood sacrifices and shit. I mean, Buffy, for for example. Yeah. Buffy has a plot line of people in power, uh, both political and and economic power that have like literal demons (laughs) that that do their work for them. Yeah. Yeah. But even that kind of buys into the, the like illusion uh, and the lie that is sold to us that you can self-determine your future. Like, oh, well, if you're willing to cross that moral line and like go to the demons, that's why you're successful. When instead it's like a fucked up alchemy of like when and to whom you were born and the things afforded to you and a little bit of talent and power um, and and will. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about who you know. I mean, it's why people go to business school is to meet people. Yeah. They just didn't know they were meeting other Faye. Yeah. There you go. I was Mm going to say, they they met some Bogarts and some Silkies. And some pukas. I hope they didn't meet a puka. I think you would remember meeting a puka. I feel like I would. What if your lecturer, though, is like always standing behind the podium and you're like, I don't know what's down there. I don't know. He could be attached to the podium. He very well could be. It could be just horse. Half man, half podium. (laughs) (laughs) Half man, half podium. All lecture. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, to me, the the most revolutionary act, like it's, I don't know, it's, it's hard to feel like protest and political action and voting. Um, and donations are enough. It just feels like such a drop in the bucket. Yeah. Um, but to, to me, a like small revolutionary act is uh, generosity yes. and hospitality, mm-hmm. um, you know, helping others up when capitalism wants me to view them as my enemy yeah. and my competition. And, um, you know, after the BuzzFeed thing, I, I just like wrote something the next morning um, saying like, this is hard. This is fucked up you know, one company doing this isn't a death knell because like it's always been this hard and it's going to keep being this hard. Like no companies can save an industry that is predicated on like free and under compensated labor. But what we can do is, you know, organize and we can advocate, we can help each other. Um, we can give away what capitalism wants us to sell and hope that, I don't know, we we leave something better to those coming up behind us. Yeah, helplessness can really permeate a person and a society very easily. So doing good by your neighbors. Yeah, like if neighbors talked about their fey experiences and which warding signs worked for them and it wasn't just whispered among like families, maybe they could have, you know, overruled them. Yeah. I don't I don't quote the Bible a lot because that's not <laughs> my thing. But there's a there's a great passage about um, being of service to your neighbors. Yeah. And I think that that is a your neighbors are not just your neighbors. Your neighbors are everyone within your community. Um and you should you should try to you should try to fight against the helplessness by trying to put some good in the world and helping other people reach a level where they can also help doing some good in the world. Yeah. The radical hospitality movement of Catholicism in the early 20th century was similarly inspiring to me when I, when I first learned about it in yeah. kind of early, early college, late high school. Um, and yeah, it's, it's like your, your initial instinct is to say, but I have to protect what I've got because who knows if I can replace it when, you know, if you have some level of security or even if you don't, uh, to be able to like give freely what has come to you and hope and expect that something else will come or that someone else will be as generous with you mm-hmm. is uh, like completely bananas yeah. and also completely powerful. There's a, there's a great line from Hades town. Yeah. Um, where they are, they're doing a cheers to Persephone to the sunshine and the fruit of the vine. She gives us every year asking nothing in return, except that we should live and learn to live as brothers in this life and to trust she will provide. And if no one takes too much, there will always be enough. She will always fill our cups and we will always raise them up. Let the world we dream about be the one we live in now. Mm. 
Oh, God. Anais Mitchell, doing great. Well, I think there's no better uh, advice to end on, except for stay creepy. Stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff. Just $1 gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, director's commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.